Hey, good morning, First Baptist Belton. Let's stand together, sing the praises of our God. He's here, he loves us in the South. Remember those walls that we called sin and shame. They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But he came, and he died, and he rose. Those walls are over now. Remember those giants we call death and rain. They were like mountains that stood in our way. This is our God, this is who He is, He loves us. This is our God, this is what He does, He saves us. He wore the cross, beat the grave, let the hand of proclaim. This is our God, King Jesus. Remember that fear. This is our God, this is what He does. 
love that line. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. It's so true. God loves us. Uh, my middle son, Titus, uh, sometimes he lives in this world where time only exists in his world and not in the regular world where regular time exists. But that mostly happens when he's getting ready to go to school in the morning. Anybody have kids like that? And he can get zeroed in focused on exactly what he wants to do, but it doesn't always come along with getting things ready for school. And so we try to get him into that right frame of mind sometimes. Uh, but there are moments when the clock is running out and he needs to get to the bus stop. And so he will come to me and say, Dad, can you drive me to the bus stop? Now, I love spontaneity a little bit. I love the adventure of figuring out, can we make it? And so I'm like, sure, son, let's go. So we get all of his things, he runs in the car, and we drive 100 yards to the bus stop. And we were doing that this Friday, and he ended up, we missed the bus. It had gone. But it's not over, because we can catch up to the bus and get it two stops down the road. So we take off, going behind the bus. Now, there's five cars between us and the bus. So we finally get to the bus stop that's two ahead with five cars in front of us. I said, Titus, get your things ready. And when I stop, you get out and you sprint as fast as you can. And so he got all his things ready. He opened the door, and he's about to start sprinting. And he looks up, and the bus had turned the stop sign off, and it had gone back. And we're like, oh, no. He missed it. He looked over at me with this look of complete we lost. We didn't make it. But then he looked up, and the stop sign came back out. The bus driver saw him, and he was so excited. It went from extreme despair to amazing joy in two seconds. He looked over at me with a huge smile on his face and sprinted all the way to the bus, and he made it. And it was awesome. And it really got me thinking this week. You're going to think, wow, what a, what a correlation here. But it really got me thinking this week about how... When we, sometimes in life, we miss the mark. We try so hard, and we don't make it. But God's the bus driver, and he sees us, and he stops again. In fact, he will get out of the bus and come after us. That's the beauty of God and following him. You know, God is so good, and when we have these moments in our life where we miss the mark, that's called sin. And sin is something that plagues all of us. And it will until we get to heaven. But God has provided for us a way, a path of freedom. In Colossians 1, it says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So aren't you glad you have a father that loves you? That will stop and say, hey, you haven't missed the bus stop. I got you. Come on in. And he'll even come after you and do that. It's an amazing truth. We're going to sing a song that highlights that scripture we just said. It's also a song that's going to highlight the fact that we need to practice clapping. So would you come along with me on this journey? Don't let the clapping interrupt the words. I want you to see the beauty of the gospel in this song as we sing it together.
do as we continue. Good morning, church family. My name is Allie Berg, and I'm a junior at UMHB. Um, yes, go crew. First Baptist Belton has been my church home for the last three years um, while I've been in college. Uh, and I'm just so blessed to be able to worship with you guys today. We're so glad that you're here. I'm going to make sure that I say the right thing because this is important information. So I'm going to look down at my phone. But... Um, we just wanted to let you know that if you are new here, you can pull out the Connect card in the pew in front of you. It says Connect with us, and you can scan that QR code with your phone and fill out the digital um, Connect card there. Let us know that you're here and how we can minister to you this morning. If you want a more personal connection, there is um, the Connection Central on the first floor right outside the worship center doors. Um, if you're looking for a more personal connection. Um, there are a few exciting things I'd like to let you know about today. First is our all-in, one-heart um, generosity initiative. If you have made a commitment last year in our all-in, one-heart generosity initiative, now is the time to start giving towards that. There are multiple ways to give. You can follow the link on the Connect card I was just telling you about. You can text to give by texting FBC Belton to 73256. You can also give through the Realm website or app. And there is also offering boxes at the exits. If you haven't had a chance to make the commitment to this yet, um, we encourage you to join that adventure today. And anything that you give towards First Baptist Belton will go towards the All in One Heart Fund, which supports all ministries that God has called us here um, at First Baptist Belton too, as well as the future vision that God is leading us in. We also have some summer mission trips coming up. Um, our summer mission trips for 2024 are set and they are to Moldova, Puerto Rico, Taiwan, and Kenya. There will be seven teams going. You can also head to Mission Central today for more information on those trips. And then finally, last but certainly not least, we have a baptism class right after service. If you have put your faith in Jesus, but you have not made a profession of that faith um, publicly yet, I encourage you to come to this class for, to learn more. You can meet right up here at the front and we will make sure that you get to the right place. Um, again, we are so glad to have you all this morning. Um, I know that God has something special for each of our hearts today. So let's continue in our time of worship by praying. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for everyone that's in this room. Um, I know that we all come in bearing different burdens, having different things going on in our lives, Lord. So Father, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts and encourage us, Lord. Um, I thank you so much that we can gather freely in this room. And um, I just pray that we would be encouraged as we go throughout our week. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Allie. I want to share this scripture passage over you as we continue in our time of worship. The scripture is found in Romans. It says this, calling the crowds along, his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life?
Amen. Y'all greet those around you. Welcome, folks, and say hello this morning. Church family, I want to teach you a, a new song this morning. This song was written actually in an old church in California. And the songwriters uh, were remembering all the saints who had gone before. And I think you know, lots of churches have legacies and history. And this church has a legacy and a history. Remember and think about all the saints who have been in worshiping in this room in the old sanctuary for all the years and all the hallelujahs, the praises that they lifted. And that's really where the, the lyric came from on the chorus of this song. But it's, it's just a vertical song that praises the Lord, remembers his faithfulness, and that, man, we have eternity to lift up his praise. So I want to teach you the chorus. It sounds like this. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. Would you sing that together with us? With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your
God, we worship you. You are the God that is worthy of all glory, all praise, all honor, and all delight. Help us to delight ourselves in you. Lord, right now, as we open our eyes and our ears to the message through the word of God, I pray that you would speak to us, and Lord, that you would show us what you want for us to hear and to change and to live into in your kingdom right now as we go to the message. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab that. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to continue our series, Messy Church, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through 5 this morning. As you're turning there, I want to brag on a group of folks in our church this morning because they don't oftentimes get a lot of spotlight, and yet they serve so faithfully. I want you to know how awesome our deacons are. Um, man, an incredible group of men. Yeah, it's worthy of, a, of an applause. Um, they make my job and they make our staff's job so easy. Man, they're working on blessing our staff and encouraging them. Uh, they helped a family move this week. They've cut down trees. They've helped a, a family with a roof in the last couple of months. I mean, they are just serving behind the scenes so faithfully. And I just want you to know if you know of one, uh, if you know of a deacon in this church, and, and man, go hug them, uh, give them a high five, a chest bump, whatever that means for you, and tell them you're thankful for them because of the way that they serve our church so faithfully. I love them. I'm grateful for them. All right, today is an important text. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. On uh, May 21st of 2013, my uh, life and ministry career was changed forever. Um, Previous to that year in 2012, a lot of things happened. I walked away from a family business to pursue full-time vocational ministry. Um, Had to tell my dad that this business that we started, that I was going to walk away and follow the Lord. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going. Um, It was a hard conversation, but God was faithful. Um, I got to marry my high school sweetheart. 
in 2012. Uh, pretty great. Um, I got to move to Fort Worth and we got to start seminary. And in 2012, finished up my first year of seminary. Got my first job as a, in a church, downtown Fort Worth, and learned a ton from people who poured into me and loved me. Um, on top of all of that, that year, I made a deal with God. And, you know, you got to be careful when you make deals with the Lord because God does have a sense of humor. I don't know if you knew that or not, uh, but God does have a sense of humor. And I told him, I said, look, Lord, I am glad to go wherever you want me to go. I will, I will be in ministry if that's what you want me to do. I may go kicking and screaming, but I'm going to go. Um, I will go to the sticks of Africa if that's where you want me to go. I will go wherever you want me to do or go and I will do whatever you want me to do. But there's one thing that I refuse to do. And that is preach. <laughs> you don't make deals with the Lord. It never works out in your favor. Um, and so here I am today. Um, you know, little did I know that I was going to walk into a chapel service that morning and listen to some great worship and, and, and it was great worship. And then the pastor got up and he began to preach. And little did I know that on that morning, God was going to meet me. Um, he was going to meet me and he was going to alter everything I thought I knew that God had called me to do. And he was going to move me in a completely different direction and, and I'm still blown away at the fact that God uses broken people to get up here and to preach a message that has the power to, power to transform your life. The sermon that was preached that Sunday was from the passage that we're looking at today, or that Wednesday is the same passage we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. So I'm going to preach to you the very sermon, well, not the very sermon, but the very text that transformed my life, that I wouldn't be here standing here today if it wasn't for this pastor being faithful to a text of scripture and preaching it. And for whatever reason, I was a little less stubborn that day and I was willing to listen and it transformed my life. And so my hope today is that by some means necessary that God would use this same text that transformed my life several years ago to maybe do something in your life as well. So let's look at the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is Paul writing, and here's what he says. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In fact, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Here's the purpose statement, verse 5. He says, so that, this is powerful, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I want you to keep in mind what is happening in this church um, the Corinthian church has experiencing quite a bit of division. And a lot of the reason why is because they started following men. They're, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Christ. And what's that, what, what that's done is kind of created a celebrity culture in the church. 
And what Paul says to them, he says, hey, listen, this should not be so. We should not elevate a man's wisdom over God's wisdom. And that's what they were doing, right? They were building sex in the church off of man's wisdom instead of God's wisdom. And what Paul's going to say today is that it's not about man's wisdom, but rather it's about God's word, that we don't unite over a man, but we unite over Christ. And that's the significance of this text is Paul pleading with us as the church in the 21st century living in Belton, Texas, that we would not divide over man, but we would unite over Christ. There's a couple of things I want to point out in this passage that I think are really, really important. Number one, Paul reminds us that transformation doesn't happen through powerful words um, or the eloquence of a preacher or a speaker, but rather transformation happens through the faithful preaching of the gospel. It's very important for you to know. It's very important for you to hear that so often as humans, we want to walk in the room and we want to be wowed. We want to be moved. We want to be brought to tears. We want to be brought to joy. We want to hear a good message. Nobody shows up here on a Sunday morning uh, looking for me to, to punt, right? Nobody, you're looking for me to add value in your life, and that's good and that's right. But hear me very clearly that God does not transform lives or save souls through the power of a man getting up before you and preaching a sermon. But God saves souls and transforms lives through the faithful preaching of God's word. The power is in the word, not in a man. You need to hear that. You need to hear that this morning because the power that happens in this room from Sunday to Sunday has nothing to do with me or anybody who fills this pulpit, but it has everything to do with the power of God working through his living word in your life that as you come into this room and you submit to God's word and his authority in your life, that is where God saves souls and transforms lives. I'm just a messenger. Paul says, I'm just a messenger. It's God who does the work. Paul takes them back to when he arrived at Corinth. He says that I came to you not preaching with lofty speech or wisdom, but rather he says, I decided to know nothing among you. Is it that Paul doesn't know anything else but the gospel? Well, no, of course not. Paul's the resident theologian of the New Testament, right? Just read Romans and you will see his uh, ability to, his, his knowledge of theology and the Bible and all of those things. But rather Paul says that I decided, I made a choice to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's because Paul knows his culture. He knows his audience. He walks into an audience of people who are both Jews and Greeks. Jews who Paul wrote last week said that they are looking for signs and they want to see this Messiah come who's a military and political leader who's going to alleviate their suffering and that they're going to reign and rule next to this Messiah. That's who they're looking for. And then the Greeks seek uh, salvation through wisdom and knowledge, and Paul demonstrates his ability to know his audience. Paul gives them not what they want, but rather what they need. Paul, knowing his culture, says, while a military leader may alleviate some suffering in your life, 
And while knowledge and wisdom are of value, they cannot save you or offer you life abundant. So while these things are of some value, Paul says, listen, they're, they're not what you need. They're what you think you need. But what you really need is Christ and him alone. That's the meat of what Paul is trying to help us see, that salvation and life are found in Jesus and him alone. They're not going to be found in a career. They're not going to be found at the end of a bottle. They're not going to be found in a relationship. They're going to be found solely in Christ and in him crucified. Not only did Paul make certain that, you know, to center his ministry on Christ alone, but he also says that he came to them in weakness and fear and much trembling. He even admits that his speech and his message were not the most effective. Paul recognizes that he shows up and he didn't preach a powerful message. He recognizes that nobody left the room going, man, that guy can preach. Man, did you hear what he said? Wow. He recognizes that when they left, nobody was right mom and saying, hey, you have got to come hear this guy preach. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among them but Christ and him crucified. I came to you not with lofty words of wisdom, not in crafty speech, not in great, you know, order skills, but rather I came to you in fear and trembling and weakness. And the question is, is why? Why would Paul do that? Paul seems to be a pretty confident guy, right? If you read any of his letters, you would see pretty quickly that Paul's a confident guy, maybe even erring on the side of arrogance sometimes, right? And so why in the world would Paul come to them in fear and trembling and, and, and weakness? Well, Acts chapter 18, verse 9 kind of helps us out here. In Acts chapter 18, this is the story of Paul going into Corinth and preaching the gospel and what happened there. And in verse 9, here's what happens. God comes to Paul in a dream, and here's what God says to Paul. He tells him, do not be afraid, Paul. But go on speaking and do not be silent. So he commands him, do not be afraid, do not be silent, continue preaching the gospel. And here's why. He says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Wow. I want you to think about what God has just told Paul. He's just commanded him, continue preaching do not be afraid. Why? For I am with you. God has now promised Paul his very presence in Corinth. But not only that, he promises him that there are people who are going to hear his message. And when they hear his message, they are going to believe and their lives are going to be transformed. So what I don't think is happening is Paul shows up to Corinth and he's fearful of the people. Oh my gosh, what are they going to think about what I'm going to say? How am I going to get up in front of all these people? I don't think he showed up in Corinth thinking that they were going to take him out back and beat him like several of the other places that he had been. Why? Because he had God's promise that none of that would happen. And so the question is, so why is Paul fearful? What is he worried about? I think Paul's fear is a unique sense of fear of the Lord in awe of the Lord that God, the creator of the universe, would call a broken vessel like Paul to get up before a people and to preach a message that God is going to use to save souls and transform lives. There is a unique fear that you and I both 
should have as we stand before a holy God. Recognizing that the God of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of everything is present among us. His word promises where two or three or more gathered in his name, there he will be also. That even this morning as we sit in these pews and you hear me speak, God's presence is here. That should fill you with a sense of awe and a sense of fear. It should fear you or it should lead you to a place of awe and fear, not knowing what the next moment of your life holds. And yet at the same time, the creator and the sustainer of the world knows everything that your life holds. The next minute, the next hour, the next day, the next phone call, the next doctor's visit, the next news you hear, he knows it all and he's not afraid. Every anxious moment, every fearful thought, he knows it all and he holds it in his hand. That should fill us with the sense of awe and a sense of fear that he is other than. It should fill me with a sense of fear that every Sunday that I don't get up here to entertain you, I don't get up here to say a few things and share my opinions with you, but as I preach God's word, this is the thing I have to work through every week, that as I get behind these words and I, Lord willing, get behind these words, that God is going to use what I say as broken as I am to save souls and to transform lives, just like my life was transformed on May 21st of 2013. Paul's fear is not of the people, but of God, and the fact that he would use a broken vessel like him to save souls and transform lives. I mean, that's powerful. Paul says, I came to you humbly, and I chose to preach nothing but Jesus and him crucified. Why? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. I think what Paul is telling them is just the simple truth that faith comes not by powerful words of wisdom, nor through creative means of ministry, nor through a charismatic speaker, but through the Spirit who works through the gospel. As the gospel is preached, God begins to speak through the words into the hearts of his audience. He awakens faith via his spirit, and he transforms lives. My role is to get up before you and to preach God's word. This is the reason why we show up on Sunday mornings. It's not because this is what we're supposed to do. It's because when we do, God speaks and he transforms, and he moves in his presence among us so that we are transformed into the image of his son from one degree of glory to the next. That's why we're here. That's why you're here. You may have been here because mom drug you here. You may have been here because somebody told you this is what Christians do. You may have been here because for whatever reason you've hit the end of the bottle of the barrel of life, and man, you're here looking for some kind of hope. The reason why you're here is because God wants to speak to you, and he wants to speak to you through his word this morning. That's where the power is found. It's not in me. It's not in any, any man. 
anyone who's preaching or teaching, it's in the power of God's word spoken into your heart, into your heart. Now, there's a couple things that I want us to think about because I think this is really, really important. And I think we can get hung up on a couple of different things. The first one is this. I want you to think about this. What is success in ministry? I want you to think about it. If you were to say, this is a successful church, how would you measure that? How would you measure that? If you were to say, oh, man, First Baptist Belton, gosh, we know we are a successful church when fill in the blank. Think about it for a second. So for the longest time, success in ministry has been measured by three Bs. B is in boy, three Bs. So that's budgets, buildings, and rear ends and seats. The three Bs. We know that we are successful by how big our budget is, how big our building is, and how many people are in the pews. And for years, this has been the metric for how you determine whether or not your church is successful. Now, in a more spiritual way, we wouldn't come out and say that. Like, you wouldn't hear church leaders saying that, right? I mean, I've never heard that in the news. You ever heard that in the news? I've never heard that in the news. We, we couch it in a more spiritual way. We'll say stuff like, well, it's all about reaching people. And hear me, hear my heart behind all this. It is about reaching people. And it is about growing God's church. And all of those things matter. Don't hear me wrong. All of those things are incredibly important. But that's not what success in ministry is. That doesn't define a successful or healthy church. In the really in the 90s and then the early 2000s, there was this thing called the church growth movement that, that kind of happened. And it was this deal that really a philosophy of ministry that took off because we were looking for an answer for, man, what do we do with all of these churches that are shutting their doors? What do we do with all of the people who don't who don't really want anything to do with the church. And you see the numbers declining and all these things. And I think church leaders got together and it's like, hey, what do we do? And so there was this philosophy of ministry that kind of came about and it was called the church growth movement. But what happened is, is what we ended up doing is church kind of became a form of entertainment, right? We, we got to get people in the doors. And so we had light shows, loud music, charismatic communicators. We had great coffee, right? If you have great coffee, It'll bring the people in, right? And so we did all of these things to get people in the doors. And as people came into the doors, that meant a bigger budget. That meant a greater need for a bigger building, which means success, which means success. Now, it may sound like I'm completely shaming the church growth movement. I'm not. I'm really not. There was a lot of great things that happened out of that. There were a lot of things that we can learn from that entire movement. A lot of great things that we can learn on how we change ministry and do different things to reach people. Because after all, it began to reach people. But what I would tell you is, I think history tells us that that is not and was not a sustainable rhythm for ministry. There was no way to sustain it. What ended up happening is you had to build a carnival in order to get them here. But if you build, them a, build a carnival to get people in the doors, then that means you've got to maintain the carnival in order to keep them there. Remember, I said this last week, what we win them 
with is what we win them to. And so some of the trouble with all of this is that you end up having pastors and church leaders who are trying to come up with the next gimmick, the greater marketing strategy and the brand and all of these things that are not bad in of themselves. But what ended up happening is we put those things onto the church because success is about those three B's. And so you ended up having church leaders trying to do that. And here's what happened. It worked. It filled rooms with tons and tons of people and you had the birth of the megachurch and you had all these people, but here's what happened behind the scenes. What happened behind the scenes is the pastors who were leading all of them, all of these churches can't keep up. They became entertainers instead of pastors. And when they're trying to keep up with all of these things and they can't, what ended up happening is they start reaching for other different methods to keep them going, to keep them engaged, to keep them, you fill in the blank and now you see all of the moral failures among pastors and churches failing and all of this nonsense. And it was all because we wanted to reach people. But instead of heeding Paul's words right here in this text, we thought that we could create it. That we could, if we just got them here, we could transform their lives. And ministry became man-centered instead of God-centered. And what Paul is telling us this morning is that a healthy church is not a church built on a man or any men, but rather it's built on God and him alone. That's why he came to them and said, hey, I'm not, I'm not coming to you with lofty speech or great eloquence or wisdom. I'm not trying to wow you. I'm just, tr I'm just trying to say that, that God created you to live in perfect relationship with him and you blew it. You walked away from him. And he has sent his son Jesus to reunite with him that you may have forgiveness and experience eternal life forevermore. And a message as simple as that has the power to transform a life. And so Paul says that our ministry has to be centered on Christ and on nothing else. No marketing, no gimmick, nothing. So does that mean that we don't preach good sermons? Does that mean that we don't... Uh, have creative means to where we reach people? Not at all. We got to do that. But we just don't put the cart before the horse. We make sure that Jesus is center, that he is central, and that we are winning people with Christ to Christ. And the reason being is because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's not going to be a pastor who's going to sustain you when you hear that diagnosis. It's not going to be a pastor who's going to be able to sustain you in the moment of your greatest need. It's going to be Christ and him alone. And so what that has done is then that has given away to number two, the birth of kind of the celebrity culture in the church. Celebrity culture in the church. Every generation of people has folks that we have made out to be celebrities. As a matter of fact, I even looked this up. This was pretty fascinating. Of all of the people that we have I'm going to create a new word for the sake of the morning, so don't judge me for that. People that we have celebratized, that we have celebrated, right, that we have made famous in our life. Every generation has them. There's actors, there's actresses, there's musicians, there's athletes, there's politicians that we have made famous. We've shown up to their rallies. We've paid thousands of dollars to watch them play games, watch their movies, and hear them perform. These are people who have made an impact in our lives. They've encouraged us through hard times. They've reminded us that there is still a glimmer of hope in life. 
It's not a bad thing. But in many ways, we have allowed this celebrity culture to work its way into the church. Here's a couple of names that I think the Christian culture has elevated to maybe even the place of a celebrity. A couple of names. People like Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a great man, but he's not a celebrity. Charles Swindoll, Adrian Rogers, Charles Stanley, John MacArthur, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Andy Stanley, John Piper, Louis Giglio, Mark Driscoll, Carl Lentz, Greg Mott, Ed Young Jr., Matt Chandler, or even David Platt. Notice something. Those are all generational names. And yet we have taken men, and rightfully so, and we have elevated them to a place that I think if you were to sit and talk with them today, they would say, man, to an unhealthy place. God has used these men in my life. He's used them in a powerful way. I've read their books. I've gone to the conferences. I've been a part of their ministries through social media. You can even track them and get to know their personalities and you can get to know their lives and their families and all of the things. I feel like I know them. And yet at the same time, if I bumped into them at the grocery store, they would not know who I am at all. These are men that we have elevated to an unhealthy place, and I have seen this happen, and I've been a part of it, where churches divide over people, just like Paul is saying that they were dividing over men in Corinth, where I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, and they create these different camps. We even have camps for different theologies. We have uh, denominations. We have all of these different things that are created around man-centered things, not all bad, But rather than uniting over Christ, we have allowed these things to come between the church. And Paul is saying to you and to me this morning that it's unhealthy. That a healthy church does not divide around men or worldly wisdom. But rather, a healthy church unites in Christ. And I think what Paul would say to us this morning, well, let me, let me back up. Because I think it's important for us to think through why do, we, why do we elevate people? Why do I do that? Like why do I look at, like why does my son who loves Patrick Mahomes, why does he think he's so great? Why do I think he's so great? Maybe not per, per, personally, but I love watching him play football. Like why do we elevate politicians? Why do we elevate these people in our life? Why do we do that? And I think here's the, here, as I was thinking and praying this week, here's why I think we do it. I think we do it because we want to relate to somebody who we deem important that in some way or fashion relates to us and can offer us a glimmer of hope. I think that's why we do it, right? And then I, I was thinking, well, what would Paul have to say to that? I think what Paul is saying in this text, I think what he's helping us see is that there is only one celebrity who is worthy of our worship. There's only one star who's worthy of our praise. I think he would help us see that it is Jesus who left the right hand of the Father and he came to the earth to relate to you. 
I think he would help us see that the most important person who's ever lived is not any celebrity that you or I know, but it is the one who dwelt with the Father for all of eternity, who again came to this earth to relate to you and to me. I'm thankful for the writer of Hebrews who says that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with everything that we experience in life. Jesus knows what it means to be sad. He knows what it means to to be starving and to be hungry after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Jesus knows what it means to be tired. He knows what it means to work a job that might not pay a whole lot as a carpenter, that might not be viewed as important. He knows what it means to be misunderstood. He knows what it means to be lonely, sad, and anxious, and even in despair as he sweat drops of blood in the garden before he gave his life for you and for me. Everything that you have experienced as a human, he has experienced as a human. And so when I go to the grocery store and I see somebody who I view and deem to be incredibly important in my life, when I walk into the grocery store and I walk up to them and they go, who in the world are you? I can go to Christ knowing that he sees me He knows me and he loves me and he has given his son for me to prove it. God has given his son, Jesus, to prove that love. I don't know of a musician, an actor, an actress, a politician. I don't know of a pastor who would ever give his son for me. And I'm going to be real with you. I would never give my son for you. But I'm not God. And the promise that we have in God's word is not only that he's willing, but that he did. And so this morning, what I want us to think through and what I want us to process is a healthy church centers around that and nothing else doesn't center around who's preaching it doesn't center around a philosophy of ministry it doesn't center around a staff or an elder elders or deacons or anything else a successful and healthy church centers on Christ and lifts him high and makes him the star of everything that we do. And by the way, somebody is going to be the star of your life. Who is the star? Who is the star? You know, as we take time here this morning to go to the table and worship the Lord via communion, as we take of the Lord's Supper, I want us to take a few minutes, even right now, and I want us to process Who is the star of your life? Just think long and hard about that. Who's the star of your life? Who is the centerpiece of everything that you do? Would you be like the Jews who were looking for another Messiah? Would you be like the Greeks who were looking for wisdom? For somebody to get up here and to pique your intellectual interest, to give you deep theology. 
Or do you come to church each morning looking for Christ? I want you to think about something. Is the gospel enough for you? Is the gospel enough for you? Is the reality that the creator of the universe, who created everything, including you and me in this room, he created you to live in perfect relationship with him. He created you in a unique way. The Bible says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. You might say you were created with a wow factor. He created you in such a way that you would walk, that you would dine, that you would live with him, that every part of your life would would be with him. And yet, because of our stubbornness and our unwilling to follow his rules, we were separated from him forever. And yet, in the place when We couldn't do anything for ourselves. There's no way we could work our way out of the mess that we have found ourselves. And yet God sent Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life in your place. To die the death that you deserved so that you may be forgiven. Absolutely. That you would be forgiven of your rebellion against him. But also that you may enjoy a relationship with him again. That you may have an eternal hope, not a temporary hope that this world offers you, that an artist or a politician or that an actor or actress can offer you. Not a temporary hope like I can offer you that you're going to, it's going to go in one ear and out the other as soon as you leave this room. But an eternal hope that can't be moved, that can't be shaken. Is that enough for you? Or would Paul come to us on a Sunday morning, January 21st, and say, I came to you not in plausible words of wisdom, not in lofty speech, not trying to wow you, but simply to preach the gospel so that your faith would rest not in the power of a man, not in the wisdom of a man, but in the power of God. Would he say that to us? And so this morning, as we take of the Lord's table, I'm going to invite our musicians to come up because I want them to play as we take some time to continue to reflect. I want you to reflect on that. Is the gospel enough? Maybe this morning, man, you've had some crazy stuff happen in your life. And may you just, you just need to spend some time with the Lord and reflect and ask him to center your heart back on the gospel. To be reminded that there's nothing that you can do to earn his favor There's nothing that you can do to outwork your sin. That if, man, if I could just tip the scale. Maybe you walked in this room and you've got some serious bitterness with somebody in the room or maybe outside of the room. Maybe a family member, somebody who's hurt you and you just simply need to go to the Lord and ask him to help you to forgive them. Maybe you've got some sin in in your life that is weighing down on you. 
thousand bricks on your shoulder and you just need to go to the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry, I need your forgiveness. And man, I, I want to be reunited with you. I want to walk with you. I want to dine with you. I want to enjoy you. Maybe this morning you've been a Christian your whole life and you could never say that you've ever enjoyed the Lord, that you've never enjoyed him, that you've never taken delight in him. Maybe it's because you've misunderstood the gospel. Maybe it's because you were looking for something else instead of the gospel in your life. Maybe you walked in here with a ton of failures and you thought, oh gosh, that there's no way that, the, that anybody would save me. There's no way that God would want me. I'm going to tell you, look at the people in the Bible, most of which we couldn't even hire as our staff. Broken, wayward, and yet God has used them in powerful ways. Oh, well, Logan, if you only knew, I don't need to. God does, and he has set his love on you, and he has invited you to come to him and to find rest in him. So maybe that's you this morning. And, you know, I could go on and on of all the different examples of all the people in this room, but what I want you to do as we go to the Lord in prayer here in just a second is I want you just to reconcile your heart with the Lord as we sit down and we dine with him. God, we come to you today as broken people, messy people, looking to you to be the one who restores us, who saves our souls and transforms our life. God, may you be enough for us Lord, that as we, in just a minute, as we take of the Lord's Supper, God, may you be reminded that it was your body that was broken for us, that nobody else could do. And yet your son Jesus was broken for us that we may be forgiven and restored to you, that his blood was spilt, God, that we might have an eternal hope, that we'd be forgiven and restored and reunited to you. God, I thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brandon, if you would, brother, if you'll go ahead and grab the mic. I want everybody to take out this nifty little cup here. And here in a minute, we're going to do this together. But the way this thing works, if you've never done it before, is there is a lip on the top, and you're going to pull back that lip here in just a second. Don't do it yet. Don't do it yet. We're going to pull back this, this top here in just a second. There's a cracker in there, a wafer in there. We're going to take it together. And then right after that, we're going to open up the second lip, and then we're going to drink the juice together. Okay? Brandon, if you would, would you pray over our meal together? Heavenly Father, we come to you today as a messy, humble, grateful family of sinners. As we take time to reflect about uh, this Lord's Supper, just remind us of your crucified son that was beaten, whipped, speared, mm -hmm. 
hanging on that cross, guaranteeing our salvation. Lord, as the blood shed, it showed just the, the blood showed your perfect love for us. The love that purchased us into heaven with you for eternity. Lord, just help us to live close by your side, to reflect upon the sacrifice, the love, the body, and the blood of your son, Jesus. Yes, In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brandon. Appreciate you, brother. Okay, I want everybody to pull back that first lip. Take out the wafer. I want to see it. Make sure everybody's together. We do it as a family. It's the whole point. We're doing it as a family. So this is what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And Jesus said, This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Amen. Okay, go ahead and pull back that second lip. Paul continues writing in verse 25. He says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This morning, we do that practice because as a family, we all come together and it reminds us that we are uniting in the gospel. That's why we do that. It's, it's affirming and agreeing together that we are saved, that we have been adopted into a new family, and we are dining together with the Lord. It's a reminder that no matter what I've done or where I've come from, I've been forgiven and I'm invited to take of the Lord's Supper. I'm invited to sit down and have a seat with the Lord. What a powerful testimony of God's faithfulness and his goodness to you and to me as we take of the Lord's Supper. So thank you for doing that. Well, this morning we've got another fun thing. So we've got some folks who have decided to join our fellowship and to join our family. And so I'm going to ask right now if you guys, if y'all would come on up here to the front and you can just walk across this long area here in the front. So if you guys will go ahead and come, I want everybody to see your faces and I want you to see their faces now that you are a part of our fam. Yeah, y'all come on out.
All right, cool guys, great, great job. Y'all passed the first uh, test and being able to walk in a single file line, you did it. Thank y'all so much for doing that. You know, this is an important thing for us because I want you guys to see their faces and I want them to see your faces because we're not just a bunch of people in a room. We're a family that God has given to us and blessed us with. And so I want you to see their faces. I want you to come to get to know them. Um, if you have some time, I hope you would take that time to come down and shake their hands and look them in the eye, welcome them. And if you're crazy enough to do so, invite them to lunch and let them know that we're so glad that they're a part of our family. Uh, what a great Sunday it's been. I hope that you guys have been so blessed by today. I know I have as I've prepared and come and shared with you and getting to share in the Lord's Supper. It's a great day. I believe God is glorified, and so I'm thankful for that. Um, I've got one more thing that I want to do because I think this is important, and he didn't get enough attention. So, um, Hollingsworth, I'm going to ask that you stand up. And... Uh, in lieu of the fact that we're not going to make anything about a man, um, today is Matt Hollingsworth's birthday, and he's a, he's a dear friend of mine, and he's been here for 18 years and has served this church faithfully through ups and downs, and he has grinded it out, and he has done it with joy. He's one of my absolute best friends, and I wouldn't be here, our church wouldn't be where we are without him, and so I want to sing happy birthday to him. So we're going to test your birthday skills. Here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Matt. Happy birthday to you. Love you, man. Your church loves you, buddy. Um, great guy. It's not about a man, but it's important that as a family, we celebrate one another and we celebrate what God's doing in our church. And so I'm thankful for that. I pray that y'all have a great day and have a wonderful Sunday. I'll see you next week. God bless you. <laughs>